Welcome to the Podcast of Ideas. You're about to listen to a recording from the Belfast Battle of Ideas, an event that took place in the Crescent Arts Centre in Belfast on the 26th of March 2022, in partnership with Imagine Belfast Festival and the Academy of Ideas. The second debate of the day was titled Misinformation, Ukraine, Big Tech and Online Censorship, with speakers including Ryan Christopher, Jenny Holland and James Harkin. Alistair Donald, co-convener of the Battle of Ideas Festival, is in the chair. Which is obviously a bit of a mouthful. (laughs) Uh, A lot of things, even in that title. Um, So I think, in a way, it might be useful to treat this this as an opportunity to do a bit of digging around in what is a reasonably complex and involved subject, actually, and see if we can just uh, uh, use it to gain a bit of clarity, even in terms of the the terms that are used in, 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 in these sorts of discussions. I mean, just briefly to try and... Uh, situate it a little bit. Um, obviously, the word misinformation has appeared regularly uh, over the past, uh, well, five years, decade or so. I think it's come into increasing use. And there's been discussions on fake news and, and uh, even the idea of a post-truth society has come, uh, become reasonably uh, fashionable. In that context, I think it's been interesting to observe over the past month, couple of months, in the lead-up to uh, war returning to Europe, the discussion on misinformation and, and uh, propaganda. I mean, there's obviously that uh, idea that truth is the first casualty of war. Um, We've seen Russia, for example, ban some of the online platforms such as Facebook and Instagram. We've seen in the West, uh, Facebook and Instagram banning some of the Russian uh, news outlets. So there's kind of a bit of censorship gone on around this, uh, uh, these ideas, online misinformation has been integral to justifying, I think, some of these uh, uh, decisions to censor things or to to, uh, no longer carry uh, certain news services on the platform. And obviously this comes on a on the back of a what even wider context than that the last the pandemic has been a period of uh, uh, furores and uh, discussions over uh, things like whether there's misinformation on vaccines and uh, even uh, the origins of COVID, of course, has been part of that discussion as well. Was it, did it come out of a Wuhan uh, lab and so on and, and so forth? And that, again, comes on the back of discussions around things like the role that disinformation played in the election of Trump or the uh, decision to Brexit. Uh, so there's, there's been a number of, of, of uh, instances and, and discussions around misinformation. And I, f- I suppose the final thing to say is that into that context has dropped just last week, uh, the decision to, or, or the introduction by the UK government of the online safety bill, which uh, has at its heart a discussion on misinformation and the idea that uh, the uh, what appears on uh, platforms, online platforms, needs to be subject to much uh, greater levels of, of control. So huge number of questions around here. I mean, we might, uh, even at a basic level, we might just want to tackle these ideas around what is in misinformation? Do we need controls? How even do you spot misinformation, actually? You know, it's, it's not easy. It's quite sophisticated sometimes. Uh, and do, in, in terms of the, the, the kind of mainstream media uh, purporting to act as institutions of trust, you know, what is the situation in terms of how, how do we develop trust in society at a time when all of this, this stuff is, is so prevalent. So, uh, to help us do that, I've got uh, a, a, a panel here of people who um, 
have come at it from a variety of different perspectives. Let me just briefly introduce them. On my left-hand side, we've got Ryan Christopher, who's the UK director of ADF International, which is a kind of faith-based legal advocacy organization that has uh, been doing lots of work, uh, particularly recently around things like the Academic Freedom Bill that we've just been talking about in the last session, or which has been part of the broader discussion about uh, free speech within universities. Ryan leads the advocacy work uh, for ADF, which means that he, he talks to all sorts of politicians and media groups and NGOs. Uh, and he also writes as well, uh, uh, particularly on the relationship between philosophy, the law, and free expression. So welcome to you, Ryan. Thanks for being with us today. On my far right, we've got James Harkin, who's the director of Centre for Investigative Journalism, uh, based in London, although James is very much a native of Belfast. Uh, he's a journalist, uh, written for a huge array of publications, all of which you'll recognise as being an, in, important. He's the author of several books, and he particularly specialises uh, in, in terms of capturing emerging social and technological trends uh, in, in the work that he's done over the years. And, I mean, we could fill up the session, actually, just talking about James Biog, I think, but uh, just to seize on uh, one particular thing that caught my eye, he was the associate producer on a couple of, I think, seminal uh, TV series by Adam Curtis, uh, including The Trap, Whatever Happened uh, to Our Dream of Freedom. So welcome to you, James. And James has been very busy over the last couple of days with a number of other events in, uh, for Imagine Belfast. So very pleased that you could make it to this one as well. Uh, and on my immediate right, we've got Jenny Holland, who's an Irish-American journalist. She cut her teeth in places like the newsrooms of the New York Times. She's worked as a fact checker for uh, media conglomerates like Condé Nasty. Uh, and also done that type of job in Belfast. She's a very experienced speech writer, uh, including for the New York Fire Service, which I think must have been a fascinating uh, uh, job to have uh, a, a decade or so ago. Uh, and she's very much convert to Substack, the kind of dynamic new form of online journalism. And uh, uh, if you're interested in what Jenny has to say, then I, I, I do say check out Saving Culture from Itself, which is Jenny's uh, Substack. So. Um, let's just uh, kick on with the discussion then. So James, if, if I can come to you first. And, and uh, I, I, when I was uh, doing a bit of preparation for this, I was reminded of the, the, the Orwell saying from, God, it must have been almost a century ago, uh, where useful lies are, uh, can be preferable to harmful truths. Um, which was a kind of reminder that, that the idea of misinformation is not necessarily something that's particularly new. It's been, a, uh, in, in some form or other, has been a discussion for a long time. But I, I just wonder, given that you've uh, thought and, and, and done a lot of work around this, kind of what, uh, what, what even is misinformation in terms of the, the way that we understand it today? And, and if it's something that's been uh, going on a long, uh, we've been thinking about a long time, then what's particular to it today? It's a good question. When we, when we talk about disinformation, this word seems to be very new, almost just five years old. It, it's very much a word which has been perpetrated by think tanks and, and governments very, very recently. But just a couple of months ago, I was reading um, Peter, Peter Wright's book, Spycatcher. Some of you may be old enough to remember the furore over that, but Peter Wright uses the word disinformation um, the word disinformation goes back to the Cold War, and generally speaking, at that point, it was used by 
rogues and renegades from, from, from the right wing of the security services who generally thought this information was what um, Russians and, and the Russian secret services did. So I suppose some, some things change and some things stay the same. What I thought I might do is just to try and offer something to you would be to um, try and disambiguate three different kinds of bad information before we we think about deconstructing those definitions because um, most big tech companies, governments and regulators that I've come across have arrived at definitions of all these things. And what they generally tend to say, I mean, this was first, um, I think, articulated in a, in a, in a report by um, the Council of Europe, these three, this, this typology of bad information. But disinformation is, is generally considered to be um, information which is deliberately spread and intended to mislead. That's what disinformation is supposed to be. Misinformation, its close cousin, is generally thought to be um, false information which is spread without any, any attempt to mislead. And then there's a third category, which people tend to be less interested in. It's called malinformation. Malinformation is thought to be true information, but which shouldn't be put in the public domain because of its um, capacity to cause harm. So when you're looking at regulatory debates around these things, those are the definitions that people use. Then they're interesting and useful. But beneath those technical definitions lie lie important political distinction value, and, and value judgments which tend to muddy all of these issues. So for example, when regulators talk about malinformation, to my mind, all they really mean is WikiLeaks. They want to find a way of, of banning WikiLeaks because they don't like WikiLeaks. And the problem with that definition of true information which should, be, um, not, which should not be made public is that now everyone is leaking against everyone else. So. Um, I'm not sure it really solves that problem. But the two bigger categories are, 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 are disinformation and, and misinformation. Let's, let's talk about disinformation. So the problem with disinformation, it's a word which is used a hell of a lot, but the problem is that on that narrow definition, it's extremely rare. So when you think of information which is deliberately put out there in an attempt to mislead. You might think of the Zinoviev letter. You might think of propaganda stories in World War I about the rape of Belgian nuns. You might think about those stories in Kuwait about babies being thrown from incubators. But the problem is, in terms of my understanding of conflict and my reporting of conflict, is that most kinds of bad information like that are not acts of deliberate deceit. Most people simply get high on their own propaganda supply. They genuinely believe these things. So even when the Russian defense minister two weeks ago said that there were American mercenaries floating around Ukraine with big bags of chemicals, he probably believed that. And if he believed that, then it's not really disinformation. So when you, when you, um, when you can't use that very narrow disinformation to ban things or to label things or to otherwise regulate them, then you have to fall back on that other category which is misinformation. Bluntly speaking, if one was a cynic, disinformation is Russians, misinformation is plebs. Um, 
misinformation is the kind of stuff that you that you see out there um, on on the internet um, in a kind of fog of rumor and conspiracy. So information which is genuinely believed by ordinary people, but which happens to be a kind of conspiratorial thinking, which is you know um, muddied with 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 falsity or, or or fake news. And the fact is that this is a problem. Um, much of the public knowledge on the big platforms is flaky, fact-free. But the problem is that that problem doesn't really have, have a technical solution. What we're seeing really is a crisis of trust in, in institutional authority and a huge rise in conspiratorial thinking, which um, if our friend groups are, are as broad as we think, um, uh, you should hopefully have some friends who believe conspiracy theories because it's important to it's important to get, engage with people with um, of all ideological um, stripes. The problem is that with that definition of misinformation, there's very little that can be done because it's very difficult to separate the wheat from the chaff. Because on that definition of misinformation, um, first of all, there's too much of it. It's like um, it's like aiming a machine gun at an unruly flock of birds. But even if we could take aim at misinformation, it's usually a cocktail of half-truths and lies rather than downright lies. So all of that stuff that we heard about in 2016, the supposed Russian bots um, spreading propaganda in the context of an American election, if you look at what those alleged bots were actually saying, most of it was was true, pretty much. It was laced with innuendo, but it was true. Um, most people don't bother um, with, with, with downright disinformation, and it's very, very difficult to regulate and separate out the wheat from the chaff. One minute left? Yes, yeah, go. My, my uh, modest suggestion is that we simply retreat from trying to regulate other people and shore up the integrity of public knowledge by doing what we can better. So journalists checking their own facts rather than checking other people, that seems to me to be um, the kind of proposal which might, which, might, which might help the integrity of public, public knowledge rather than banning things. Sorry, I was going on yeah. about that. Yeah, okay. So that, that, that's very useful, James. Um, and maybe, Jenny, if I can come to you next, because uh, you've worked in, well, I mean, first of all, you've worked in newsrooms. Secondly, you've worked as, as, as a fact check checker. And that last point that James makes about, sh you know, journalists doing their own fact checking, I mean, the noble, if you like, uh, profession of journalism uh, uh, has always, or uh, at best, has purported to have an objectivity about it uh, that, that's central to its very existence. Yeah. So, um, in your experience, I mean, why, 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 why the fact checkers? You know, why have they come um, around? Um, if, if we, you know, if journalists can't be trusted to be objective, then you know. <laughs> well, they definitely can't. Um, but well, fact, in, in at least in, in American media uh, of 10, 20 years ago, uh, newsrooms, like newspaper newsrooms, didn't have fact checkers. I was a fact checker for a magazine company. Um, uh, especially in a place as sort of vaunted as the New York Times, uh, the journalists were their own fact checkers, and then they had a very rigorous editorial process for everything that went in the paper. Obviously, that didn't mean that mistakes or uh, deliberate distortions didn't ever happen, but um, it was they, they, they were considered very separate. Fact checkers were sort of a separate entity. Um, now, I think what you're saying about journalists should spend time checking their own facts, I think, is more relevant than ever 
maybe even more relevant than it was when I was in my 20s, um, just because the entire media climate has become politicized to such a degree that I no longer consider it even to be journalism uh, as a broad rule. And maybe there's some exceptions, but I can't even think of one, to be honest. Um, but should I just, could I go on in my, yeah. so, I mean, I want to start with um, two things that I noticed sort of from the big tech side, and then I'll kind of go into talk about media specifically, uh, journalism. Um, so about the about 2016 or 2017, uh, I noticed there was two stories that kind of stopped me in my tracks that I that I came across um, on social media, and one was uh, I think it was right after Trump's election. So of course the, the tension was high, everyone was upset, everyone was sort of tearing their hair out and how can this happen kind of thing. And I, I live here in Northern Ireland, but I'm half American and all my family is in America, and so I'm still very connected to like the whole ecosystem over there. Um, and I just came across a post on Facebook. Um, someone shared it, and it was a, a man with a profile picture and a name, and it said, it was, a, it was a long description of an interaction he had had with a group of Nazis. And it really stopped me in my tracks. I was like, oh my God, this is really happening, okay? So I read the entire post, and as I read through, I became more and more confused and less and less believing what I was reading. And there were certain things that I found odd, like there was no, I was in this city, I was in Cincinnati, or I was in Brooklyn, or I was in Portland, Oregon. Um, there was very, very, there was no specifics and everything just seemed very obvious. So he was walking along and it was a group of like blonde, muscular men and it, everything sounded like a stereotype and a trope. And I thought, and it just sounded really exaggerated. Like, I, I mean, I've lived in America on and off most of my life and I don't remember ever a, coming across a band of roving neo-Nazis. I really haven't. Um, so I just, and I clicked on his profile and there was really nothing there. There was no city, there was no education, there was maybe one photograph. And I think that was my first encounter with, with a bot. Who, who knows what the provenance of the bot was? Maybe it was Russian, maybe, I'll never know. Um, and that really unsettled me. Um, shortly after that, I was listening to a very, now very famous and very controversial media figure called Candace Owens. Um, and She's now like a lightning rod and a conservative firebrand with millions of followers and her own TV show on a, on a, right, a right wing um, new media station. Um, but at the time, she was just starting out with a YouTube channel. And she, her sort of origin story is that she uh, was bullied online. And so she's, when she was just a, a person working for a bank or something. And so she started a um, GoFundMe or a Kickstarter campaign to essentially unmask anonymous Twitter accounts. Um, and as she was kind of gaining a little bit of traction, she was not famous in any way, she, started, she got a phone call from a, a person rather high up in Twitter, and the conversation started out cordially, and she was asked to please stop the Kickstarter campaign. She declined, and it escalated, this is her telling of it, it escalated to the point where the woman was very upset and became hysterical and crying and said, you don't understand what's about to happen here. You're gonna be attacked by racists and all this stuff. And she was like, sorry, and they hung up the phone, and she said, within a few hours, her inbox was full of racist abuse. She's black, by the way, she's African-American. Um, and I just thought that was really odd. Like, why did this Twitter woman call her? Like, she, I can't remember the, the, the woman's title, but she was high up. And it just seemed very strange to me. So I've, ever since then, ever since 2017, I've really kind of put a big question mark over pretty much everything I've seen on, on, on social media about politics. Um, and that's a good thing, obviously. I've, I've, I drew my own conclusions there. Um, but I, 
it's only gotten exponentially worse. And now what I'm seeing is that the mainstream media, the legacy media, the corporate media, the establishment media, I'm talking about the American one now, I'm not, I'm not gonna deal with the British, I don't know it as well. Um, but I'm, see, I'm seeing the same kind of tactics in actual news stories. And that to me was sort of like a line I never thought I would come to have to cross. Um, so I've developed a couple of um, pointers, like principles uh, to, to help me deal with this frustrating um, situation as, as someone who's always been a news junkie, literally my whole life since I was a little kid. Um, so I've come up with, with a few first principles to guide me, right? Okay. I, I no longer trust anyone. Okay, one is beware of anyone who's claiming to act uh, in my safety or to protect me from information. Do not trust them. I don't care who they are. Um, does this story, the news story, uh, include specifics, or is it mostly based on slogans? When I, mean, when I say slogans, I mean build back better, or safe and effective, or protect the NHS, or wear a mask, or mass or safe, blah, blah, blah. All that stuff, don't trust that either, okay? Um, look out for unexpected opinions or odd bedfellows. So for example, I'll give you one example. Uh, Naomi Wolf, who is a famous American Democratic feminist, she worked for the Clintons, she was a speechwriter or something. She is now regularly on Steve Bannon's uh, daily news show, which is like the far right, okay? They are, they are completely in sync politically now uh, on certain issues. Um, practice, oh, a very important one, practice not having opinions on certain issues. And even going so far as to say, I actually don't care about that issue. I don't care if it's climate change and it's supposed to be important. I don't care. I, I'm radical on that stance, okay? I can't care about everything. Um, and if you don't listen, if you want to know what's going on in America and in some other parts of the world as well, if you don't listen to American right-wing media, you're not going to know what's going on. You're just not. Okay. So, I mean, I want to come back to some of that stuff uh, in the discussion because when you say don't trust slogans, I mean... First of all, there's been many slogans in history that yeah. are eminently sensible and, and represent a position. So I think there's a, there's a question there as to where um, your uh, self-assertion that you can unravel what's misinformation and what's not, uh, where does that get you in terms of a kind of general climate of distrust in society? So, uh, Hi. No, no, don't answer that <laughs> okay. this, this just now, but this, this is an important thing because are we talking ourselves into being mistrustful and distrustful yeah. of things that are kind of eminently sensible and, and, and normal? So that's just a a question that to hold uh, that we might come back to. But Ryan, um, so in uh, distinction to, to uh, Jenny's idea that uh, we're all eminently capable ourselves of kind of understanding these things, the government uh, has come along with its online safety bill, uh, which and, and, and they're suggesting basically that there's need for legislation uh, that uh, helps us do that job. So I, I just wonder if you can say a little bit about this bill and, and, and what it is, because I've been aware of it since, a, I think, around about 2018, uh, at least that. Um, it's, it seems to have been on the go since then. Um, in the style of government bills that are going through just now, it seems to have an enormous range of things going on. It's, it's acted like a sponge to effectively soak up many of the concerns in society over the past four or five years, it seems like that. So kind of, can, can you give us a sense of what it is and uh, in your estimation, what the problems with it might be? Yeah, we just heard that you need to be wary of anyone that says they're doing something for your own safety. <laughs> and that's exactly the, the raison d'etre that the government is giving for the online harms bill, safety bill, 
um, that was laid in Parliament a few days ago. It's going to be debated before the recess, we believe, and then again afterwards. So it would be the ultimate, the earliest, where it could get into deep, deep water in terms of parliamentary debate. Um, I just want to, to start by just emphasizing how serious and how big a step change in the online space this bill represents for each of you in the room. And I'm going to use an imperfect analogy with private spaces that are also public. Right? One of the things that's difficult about Twitter and Facebook is it isn't just the public square. It is actually private to some degree. You sign T's and C's. And so that creates a lot of the difficult academic debate around how free these platforms should be to do what they do with your information and whether this to kick you off or not. I want to use an everyday analogy that I think would, would alarm us, that I think is fairly accurate. Think about a shopping centre, right? That's a public space. The public need to use it in a very public way. We exchange ideas, we have conversations, often shows, whatever. Um, but it's privately owned, right? When you're in that privately owned but public space, you, uh, the way you speak to another person is governed really only by the criminal law, and rightly so, from a traditional kind of Western values perspective. So what I might say to a stranger or proclaim is limited by public order law. And if I break that clear criminal definition, then I might get arrested by the police or security might, might intervene. I think we all accept that to some degree, that that's, got, uh, that's a reasonable interference. Uh, what will happen if this bill um, comes into force in the online space is imagine yourself in the shopping mall and you're having a conversation with some friends um, about something that is entirely legal to discuss. Um, let's say, um, to, to a point of controversy, that biological male and female is real, right? A controversial kind of um, political discussion that's ongoing now. What this bill, bill requires the shopping centre authorities to do is to have a security person or an automated robot following you everywhere you go within that space and listening to everything you say in case you start to have a conversation about something that might impact someone psychologically or physically in a significant way. That conversation can be legal. It doesn't need to break current criminal codes. And what it mandates the shopping centre authorities to do, the owners to do, is to proactively stop you continuing that conversation. Or, even better, to stop you having that conversation in the first place anyway. And insofar as they can, to build a, a profile about you and the conversations you have in that shopping centre, so as to be able to deny you entry in the future or permanently. That's, I think, a, a reasonably good analogy for what's happening to our online space after this bill comes in, just to have you understand how serious a change this will represent. Oh, I'm happy to go into details, but I'll leave it there for the sake of time. Yeah, so uh, maybe just a quick question to, to all of you, actually, um, before we come out to the audience for questions, and maybe start with you, Ryan, because following on from that, I mean, the, the way that the, the motivation for this bill, whenever I hear the Culture Secretary or, or Damien Collins, who's the guy that chairs the parliamentary committee on this, they all their, their starting point is always about online the online harms aspect of it not necessarily misinformation but that uh, out there it's the kind of wild i mean you know 
30 years ago, the, the World Wide Web came about on, on, on a kind of a, a sense of, yes, here we go, kind of anything's out there, it's going to be good because there's all sorts of ideas or whatever. You know, today we seem to have almost reversed that because uh, anytime ever, anybody ever talks about the internet, it's kind of it's full of child pornography and abusive situations and encouragement to online uh, to, to harm yourself or even commit suicide or whatever. So, is there anything in this bill that that kind of is to be respected and 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 and, and to support it? Because you know that that doesn't sound a particularly good situation in terms of the way they talk about it. There are plenty of things that I think almost anyone in this room would agree with that we need to stamp down on um, via the law, in particular, um, law that's debated rig rigorously in each case. So, for example, child pornography or content that encourages young people to kill themselves. I think we'd all agree, or I imagine most people would agree, that we shouldn't be able to spread that kind of information to children. So that's the problem, is when the government speaks about this bill, that's the headline they give. And it's perfectly possible to regulate those things as standalone pieces of legislation, right? But thrown in the mix instead, along with this, with, with that being the headline, is that what they're going to create is a regulatory environment, in effect, by which Ofcom, the Office for Communications, will be judge, jury, and executioner about any language that isn't those things at the same time. So like I say, controversial um, issues around biological sex, whatever, will be, it will be Ofcom's remit to decide what's reasonable and, and what isn't, and what can be said and what can't. Um, and who enforces it? It'll be the companies themselves, it'll be Google and Facebook, who will in practice make a decision, along with their lawyers, or it'll be employee Bob at his computer regulating your, your speech, to say, actually, I think what you're saying there has a negative psychological impact. By the time we've got to the, the main effect of the bill, has got nothing to do with the laudable aims it would otherwise have. And I'll just say one more thing. There have been lots of, there's been lots of legislation, particularly since the 70s and 80s, around our speech in the streets, which is equivalent to online, where there have been really laudable headline aims by the government. And even in those cases, it's gone badly wrong. So Public Order Act 1986, what was the reason given in Parliament for the restrictions on your speech or the criminalization of your speech insofar as it is. It was violent hooliganism. The government were really clear at the dispatch box in those debates. All we're gonna do is stop violent, racist hooligans abusing people. And in fact, what we find is, again, um, on, on the gender debate, for example, police regularly arresting people or shutting conversations down in the street with regards to controversial opinions that might offend people. So, it's got nothing to do with the laudable aims in terms of the biggest effect. And even when those aims are laudable, the bills, these bills are often so sloppily written as this bill is, so as to leave power, arbitrary power in the hands of those that enforce it. And that's the case here too. Okay, so James, let, let me come to you then because um, Ryan says, uh, it, the, it notes the expansive nature of all of these things. But anytime, I, again, I hear MPs or, or, or uh, the people who are sponsoring the bill talk about it, and this is, this is a, a question from a journalistic perspective, they always say, oh, we've carved out protections for journalists and for news outlets or whatever. So uh, how, is, is that true? Are you confident or, or kind of where do you just stand on, on, on this kind of piece of legislation? Well, I think most journalists, if not all journalists, know where they stand, which is that they are very much against the legislation as written. And there's a particular reason for that, because it appears to allow tech companies to take down 
journalistic content willy-nilly in a sort of knee-jerk way without justifying in any way why, why they've done so. So it, so it sort of hands all this power to a sort of new bureaucratic layer of rather sort of bored moderators um, who are sometimes sort of impervious to nuance, rhetoric, or, or anything else about human conversation. So in that sense, it's, it's, it's dangerous for journalists. Yeah, okay. Jenny, any, any, any thoughts? I mean, your, uh, uh, your, your Facebook story, as it were, um, I mean, how, how do you see this playing out? Because on the, on the one hand, it seems to be the big tech companies that have been on the forefront of constraining news outlets. But is, is the government then not just providing a proper mechanism to regulate that, or...? or? Um, because their, their point is that this bill is going to, uh, you know, protect free speech in a sense right. from these nasty big tech companies. No. <laughs> I mean, I, now I, I did, I looked at the bill and I, I read the government's, you know, the government's um, pitch essentially, which was just what you said. Think about the poor children being horribly abused and think about all these terrible harms. Now. Obviously, those are things that need stamped out, as you said. Um, but as I was reading it, I was like, this sounds great, but what's in the detail? That's always the problem. What is in the detail? Um, and lockdown and COVID taught me to never again trust this idea of we're doing this for your safety, we're doing this for your protection. Um, in terms of how it will affect journal, I mean, who knows what, it, what will eventually come to, into law, if anything, of this bill. But I mean, on principle, uh, no, I, I would I would absolutely agree with both both my fellow panelists because um, it's not it's not the government's job to regulate this issue to regulate speech. Again, as from an American perspective, I think what would be much better is if they brought in a First Amendment. Okay. Can I just add about Go the journalistic America. aspect? Right. Because Very quickly. It's, it's going to be bad as well as good. So the government's claim is that journalistic expression for registered journalistic outlets like the BBC or The Guardian will be absolutely untouchable by Facebook and Google and YouTube. So in that sense, it looks good on the face of it. Yeah. But the unintended effect of that will be twofold. Firstly, there's going to be a particular cast of, of what becomes a registered journalistic outlet, right? And um, in terms of what uh, registered journalistic outlets will have to do to be registered, will be to be increasingly conservative and keep their opinions within the mainstream that may be judged by Ofcom and others going forward. So it's going to make speech less liberal by the registered outlets. And it's also going to start to create a wall um, around those that are registered uh, and have, the, have that free access to, to speak um, in that kind of unregulated way. There's a real problem there for, for democratic um, thinking and debate and discussion, actually. Okay, good. So, um, who would like to speak or ask a question or make a comment? Yeah, um, I, I just w wanted to ask more about, I guess, what is the alternative? Because when we talk about cancel culture and critique it, it is partly said that it is due to these online mobs that are kind of mobbing individuals and getting them sacked. And so I guess the government's perspective may well be that these online forums are having kind of material effects on people's lives. We've had the whole conversation around Joe Rogan and um, you know, so-called kind of COVID misinformation in this sense that what is being spread online is having real material consequences. And so whilst the kind of legislation has been critiqued, I, I still feel that there, there is a sense that um, there is 
it, it is very difficult to have um, a kind of productive political conversation in a climate where um, the digital world is increasingly the public's sphere. So do we need to create you know, new uh, norms within, amongst ourselves, um, new kind of rules about, of engagement? Or, you know, yeah, how do we deal with that real issue that there does seem to be real material consequences to what's going on online? Yeah, good. Uh, the, what's the kicking off point of something better? I, th I think that's a useful question. There was a hand at the back, I think. Yeah, hi. Um, just when we're talking about Facebook and Ofcom and all these other things, and I'm looking at Ukraine and the way Facebook and Twitter are preventing a platform for neo-Nazis like the Ukrainian battalion and uh, whatever the other regime's called, is that a case of like my enemy, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? And then if that's acceptable in the Ukraine, then what's acceptable in the UK? Or is it because that's outside of our remit? Like who cares what happens in other places? Should we be concerned about that? Okay, thank you. Yeah, um, maybe this is like too big, um, but I, I wondered about, you know, if um, the suppression of, um, you know, dissident points of view, which might represent, you know, whole swathes of the population, if that's being engineered, um, how that relates to the big political upsets of Brexit, the national populist surge, the Trump phenomenon, um, how, in a sense, I mean, my, in my view, the you know important causal factors were that this is the the left behinds of globalization registering a protest vote. Um, also, political correctness does come into it—a kind of a strike back against political correctness. So I just wonder about that as a context for more and deeper suppression about how that kind of you know, comes back somewhere down the line, you know, kind of sowing dragon's teeth, so to speak. So it just came to mind with regards to the legislation and the issues being discussed. Okay. So anything you want to pick up on, anyone, out of those, those questions? Um, I'm thinking it might be useful to think of the sort of creeping um, regulatory impulse here. So in the world of journalism, there's been a recent move in the last couple of years before all of this to... Lots of big um, non-profit foundations and big tech companies identified things like trust labels, like you would, you, would, you would have certain content on the internet, you know, big media, that you would put a trust label on. But I don't imagine why anyone thought that would work. I mean, the kind of people who don't trust something in the first place, why would they trust something? Because someone, some big organization has paid for a label that says you can trust it. I worry that many of these um, very soft almost nudgy type ways to make people trust things um, are going to produce um, a backlash. I, I did, a uh, did a fellowship at Harvard on disinformation and the, most, the two most poignant moments, well, shall I give you both of them? One of them was I met a guy who was being paid a lot of money um, by different liberal foundations, including the Open Society Foundation, to investigate conspiracy theories about George Soros and the Open Society Foundation. I don't understand how anyone thinks that that would alleviate conspiracy theories by paying someone, paying someone to investigate conspiracies on the other side. The other really poignant moment was um, um, attending a lecture where a woman was talking about Russian disinformation on bots. And this man put up his hand, this very old man, um, a veteran, an American veteran, and he said, you know, 
Um, I've been thrown off Twitter because I was identified as a Russian bot just because I said something vaguely dissident about a recent war. Um, so I think um, these are slightly random thoughts, but I think it is interesting to think about civility, the public square, and whether there are analogies between the real world and the online world. To be a, a little bit of a pessimist here, I think if I was a Victorian liberal, I would say that in the sort of you know, free market and exchange of conversation on things like Facebook, we would, we would achieve this wonderful vision of progress. But much of what passes for conversation on the internet now it looks a bit more like a sewer. Um, so I'm not sure we, we, can, we, can, we can say that this passes for a public square in progress, but I do know that the consequences of banning it would be even worse. Yeah. So, so Jenny, just because I, I think that point's well made, that, that um, uh, in, in, in terms of the question from over here, the, the, the kind of, the point is that there's an already an, a disillusion with these current yeah. online forums. So, so kind of is, is there a potential to transform them or is yes. there just something? Uh, that I think there is. I mean, I don't know if you can transform the institutions themselves. I have no idea. But I, I did just yesterday have a uh, I came across something that made me hopeful, so I'll just share that with you. Um, so because everyone is in silos now, the left and the right and the vax and the anti-vax, and everyone's in a silo, and I try and kind of pull information in from various sources, but there's never any direct conversation. Uh, just yesterday, I was listening to um, Megyn Kelly's podcast from a few weeks ago with Bobby Kennedy, Robert Kennedy Jr., who's a now notorious anti-vaxxer. Now, I had been listening to him around Dr. Fauci and a lot of his critiques on lockdown, his critiques of the COVID vaccine, and I find them very interesting. He's written a very successful book. It hasn't been challenged in any way by the authorities, so let's just assume it's true. Um, so I was, you know, having never been an anti-vaxxer before, I was sort of like, hmm, I wonder, maybe there's something to these criticisms from of childhood vaccines. What Megyn Kelly did was she had him on her podcast. And to be honest, I mean, they're both attorneys, they're both trial lawyers. Uh, she demolished him on childhood vaccines. She absolutely demolished all of his positions. She got the best of his arguments. She was more convincing. So that's exactly what you need. So when the media runs around, you know, wringing their hands about, oh my God, the misinformation has been, they are the ones directly responsible for it. Not only are they themselves producing misinformation, I mean, if you want to be kind, maybe you can say misrepresentations of things that have happened, which is what they do on a regular basis, at least in the mainstream media in the States. But they're also then slandering and othering everyone with a dissident opinion. Um, now, so the fact that Megyn Kelly did this was such a relief to me because I found it very, very useful. It helped me realign myself again on an, in, on an issue that I personally am not an expert on, but you know, everyone has their opinions, right? So it, it gave me hope, essentially. I think the more the media and the more big tech um, shows itself to be what, it, what they are, the more individuals are seeking out alternatives and even finding them sometimes. Ryan, it, it, it kind of—I I suppose the argument is more information is is the kind of root out of this, uh, in in a sense. But is that is that something that you go for? But I mean, it gets quite tricky when you make these arguments in terms of, say, for example, the situation in the Ukraine war just now, where uh, Russian. 
uh, news stations and, and, and news outlets have been taken down. And some would say, well, it's legitimate in a situation where, I mean, we're not at war with Russia, but we're supporting a nation that is, uh, is entirely legitimate that your enemies are not allowed a free space for, so, so, so can you stand up for the more information? Is, is it just a case of we don't trust people to interpret things or is, how, how do you see it? Yeah, I'd always back more information, better information, better dialogue than, than shutting it down. I think in, in the Western liberal tradition that, that we live in and mostly celebrate, war is the one exemption where we'd always say, all right, there's legitimate means here, right? There's a serious reason why you might start using proactive propaganda to help improve morale. And we've seen that with the Ukrainian authorities. Outside of, outside of war, though, we really are at a point, I think, in our culture where we're wrestling with do we really believe in liberal democracies as we did? Are those our guiding principles, actually? Or do we believe in a high priesthood and certain truths are more important than others? And we don't believe in open dialogue and discussion. I think that's reflected on in the um, situations we have on campus right now. We have a, a generation of students that I think in practice are rejecting the liberal democratic values that run the heart of the human rights era post Second World War. And in fact, they're saying, no, there are truths. There is a hierarchy of truths here. They're objective. A lot more, ironically, like Vladimir Putin would say, and a lot of people in Russian society would hold, or medieval Catholic Europe would have held that actually there is objective truth and it is legitimate to cast out opinions that are that run counter to that. So I think that we're in a big post-liberal moment and we don't know what we're doing with it. And th thrown into the mix of that cultural confusion, is a lack of clarity and definition by our government about what an online space, in, uh, space is, what harm is, right? What misinformation actually is. And, and they're legislating for it and giving powers to quangos who have their own culture and, and will therefore be able to dictate the online speech that we have. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of dumpster fire of a mess in my view. Okay. So yeah, go on. But, um, the Russia Today thing, think of a spe um, something specific to journalism. I mean, the argument for banning Russia Today, there was no argument, I think, even about harm. I mean, I think the, the general criticism was that it was bollocks. Um, and much of it is, um, but some of it isn't. And if you're a journalist, for example, if you're one of these new kind of open source journal journalists looking at the wars in Syria, you can get tremendous stuff from Russia today and the Russian military defense. Often some of your best stories come from the enemy. Some, some of the stuff in Russia today and Syria was, was, was really, really interesting for all kinds of journalists. So by banning all that, um, you, you lose so much. I mean, you can, yeah. you, can get, you can get nuggets from anyone. So why would you ban anything like that? Yes, I strongly agree with that. Okay, so um, one last round of questions. I'm, uh, who, who wants to speak? So quite a few hands. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating uh, conversation. And <clears throat> if, if, <clears throat> if I was to make a, a choice, I think I would rather prefer to be <clears throat> on the side of more speech rather than less. Um, I think that uh, when it comes down to <clears throat> decision on how much speech is to be allowed, um, it's better to permit utterance which may to feel, feel, some may feel grossly offensive and may even contain misinformation, rather than by restricting it and to uh, cause things which some may feel to be essential not to be uttered at all. And I, I feel that that might be a, a bigger loss than any harm that may be done by allowing something that may cause offense but, and even may contain misinformation. 
Yes. Okay. Thank you. Um, so for all intents and purposes, social media and the internet at large are in their infancy, but um, are very much here to stay, I think we know now. Um, and for Gen Z, and I think the next one is Gen Alpha, um, they're growing up in this environment, they're being shaped by this environment. Um, from your perspectives, what would you say are the biggest skills that we need to be building in them to build resilience against misinformation and encouraging digital and liter media literacy um, for these, these young generations? Okay, thank you. Yeah, no, very, very interesting um, discussion. I think one thing perhaps we haven't touched on quite yet is the idea of um, anonymity uh, within these social spaces. Like if you were walking around Tesco's, you know who you are. You're responsible for what you say. People can judge you looking at you, knowing who you are, that you're saying it. It's a question of whether that needs to be inputted more and I within those uh, social network frameworks where people can just blag on any account and just say what they want. Okay, thank you. Um, so it was your, yourself made um, a distinction, sorry, in the pink, I've forgotten your name. You made the distinction between the mainstream media and sort of these kind of like new wave podcast spaces that kind of like act as a forum for the exchange of ideas. Um, but that's fast becoming the orthodoxy now and the way in which we consume information. And you talked about having been convinced by one of the one of the hosts, uh, one of the one of the guests' arguments. But I think there's a distinction between a, a convincing argument and a correct argument. I mean, obviously yourself and a lot of people in this room have the kind of like faculty to make that kind of like observation and be convinced by certain kind of like facets of an argument. But for the general populace, I think we have to treat it with more skepticism. People be, can be convinced by kind of like a grandiose Candyman sort of bravado and all of that pageantry. And so I think my question really is what sort of checks and balances, if any, should we introduce into kind of like mitigating now the kind of like rampancy with which these kind of hosts were allowed to operate? So like I think the main example would be the likes of Joe Rogan and things. And should there be some degree of accountability introduced into that space that's now becoming the orthodoxy? Do you think Joe Rogan should have checks and accountability? Do you think he should have the warning signs on his podcasts and things like that? I think that's why I'm asking that question, because I'm, I'm, I, I don't know. I genuinely yeah. don't know. I can, I can certainly see the arguments for both sides. Um, and it, like returning to my question of like the general populace falling victim to this kind of like Candyman idea, um, I think he's a very convincing speaker. But again, it doesn't necessarily follow that what he says is correct just because it's convincing. So I don't know. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. So hopefully coming yeah. away from this. I yeah, no, know. I just thought I'd uh, get a sense of what you thought as well. Um, yes. Um, it's interesting, the Ukraine, the war in Ukraine. It seems to me that I've never seen a more profound example of the idea that human beings are desperately fragile uh, in every respect. And this relates to what you're talking about, the unharmed line bill, which I think is a reflection of the government's feeling that people out there in the broader world are very, very fragile. And uh, we need protecting from the consequences of sort of whatever it might be for our, for our kind of psychological state. If you listen to the reporting on the Ukraine war, um, and this is particularly true of the BBC, every, almost every question begins with, how do you feel? You know, it's, not, it's, it, it, it's a whole question of the kind of BBC and all the journalists across ITN and everywhere I listen to, as if they're dispensing therapy to the people in Ukraine. And this is interesting because it's like, I, for me, it began way back in, in, in the Balkans war. I don't, I don't know if people remember a man called Martin Bell, the man in the white suit who was a journalist um, in, in the Balkans war. And he coined a phrase called the journalism of attachment where he was basically making the point that 
journalists should not be sort of these kind of free-floating individuals above the conflict trying to report factually on it, but they should attach themselves with what they believe to be right, what they believe to be the right side, the moral side, and make the case extensively for that. And that's what has happened to journalism across, certainly, you know, Western Europe. I can't speak for America exactly, but we are now getting reporting that is not about the facts and about um, allowing us to make a, an educated opinion about what might be happening in the world. It's about what they believe we as fragile human beings need to hear. Okay, thank you very much. Going back to, I, I can't remember now whether I'm talking about misinformation or disinformation, <laughs> so forgive me, James. Um, but I was thinking about, you know, as much as there is a real problem, I agree with Ryan and Jenny, about, the, about a government trying to control what would be defined as um, bad speech, misinformation, or whatever it is. But there's also a trend um, uh, among us plebs about, about how uh, we interpret or deal with bias. So I'm sick to the back teeth of hearing one side say, the BBC is just pumping out misinformation. It's never, you know, if you don't pay your licence fee, it's completely, it's, it's all crock of crap. I don't listen to it. And then the other side, um, who, you know, maybe you class them as Guardian readers or whatever, say that everything that comes out of the Telegraph is terrible and they tell lies and the right-wing media and both sides are as bad as each other. And there's a real kind of lazy way of looking at um, political bias, which is a real thing that happens, and labelling it as misinformation in a kind of thing where Alistair was talking about a fetish for fact-checking. So I was thinking back to the, um, you know, the, in the South, the Irish state has had a terrible time with its decade of centenaries and um, the way in which it tried to, the, you know, the official videos that it tried to put out about um, 1916 were, you know, a, a load of um, kind of modern guff not relating to history at all, something that Dermot Ferreter called a historical shit. You know, it's just pictures of people clubbing and stuff and, and nothing to do with any of the rebels. And then recently in 1920, uh, the, with the 1922 commemoration, the Taoiseach Meal Martin talked about um, the, you know, the, the description of the creation of a free state. And it was, it was, you could argue that it was a historical shit and that a lot of it was actually factually incorrect. But actually what was going on was political bias, was, a, was a something that you can understand and put into context. And I just wonder, have we lost the ability to do that, which is to say, well, I read a Telegraph article and I think I know the kind of bent that generally comes from that paper. And then I read something else from a particular columnist at another paper and I know their bent. You know, whether it's, you know, the journalism attachment point is slightly different, but now it feels like we're going to, it's almost like people, to, as a solution to this, people want to suck all the politics out of everything. Yeah. So that you just have this yeah, incredibly... Uh, you, you kind of reduce it to a sort of um, GCSE crib sheet on what's going on in the world, right. rather than the nuances that come with political bias, as long, as, you know, as long as you understand all the difficulties that come with it as well. Got about a couple of minutes each, really, just to give us a few uh, uh, kind of final thoughts on anything that's been asked or something that we can go away, take away with us and, and, uh, and think about. So let, let me start with James again, and we'll just go in the order that we started. So, so James, pick up on anything that you want or just... Yes. So a few random thoughts, coming back to um, what Ella and Jenny said about um, partisanship in the media. You know, that old edifice of something called impartiality, that, that old media model is creaking. So it's very dangerous when we ban things like Russia today because we call them deeply partisan, only giving you one side of the story. Because I see a lot of that 
in in the mainstream media. So that's a very slippery slope when we start when we start um, when we start looking at that. And I think Ella put it quite well in terms of we almost have this double bind of increasing partisanship, and then they sort of gloss over the top of it as an attempt to regulate that in in, in a very in, in a very artificial technocratic way. On Joe Rogan. I feel like, having spoken to a lot of American journalists about Joe Rogan, I can't help thinking, much as I disagree with Joe Rogan about most things, that people are just really jealous of Joe Rogan. Yeah. And so when they're labeling him as dodgy, and the New York Times is clearly desperate for that kind of readership, you start to think, hmm. The last thought I had was on something you said about what we can teach children. I was at a conference recently in Cologne, um, no, a couple of years ago, and um, I met a, a woman, a former journalist, everyone's a former journalist nowadays because there isn't any work in journalism, <laughs> and, and she was running um, a fact-checking and misinformation scheme to teach children. And I, my first thought was I was deeply impressed at her entrepreneurial noose because she was coining it in from the big tech companies. <laughs> and my second thought was, that's a little bit scary. It's almost like the sort of you know, stranger danger thing, teaching children how awful information can be and what, you know, what to be potentially scared about. I think if we want to teach children and young people anything, it should be something about what distinguishes a, a sort of font of information from something that looks a bit more like knowledge, something positive, rather than teach them very defensively on, on things to avoid. Yeah, it, it does almost seem sometimes like the some of the moves uh, that on the face of it, assert a certain neutrality and a, and a certain protection of the truth are actually the very mechanisms through which regulation uh, and uh, a, a shift away from the truth are actually realized. I mean, fact-checking in some ways is a case in point. I mean, you had the introduction by papers like the Washington Post of a fairly aggressive uh, uh, fact-checking operation, which then um, operated throughout the entire Trump period and was dropped immediately. Biden came to power because it was felt that it was no longer uh, uh, necessary. So it's, it's a kind of, the fact-checker acted as a, as a, as a kind of... Uh, uh, to engineer certain perspectives in that newspaper. That, uh, it's no wonder that people become suspicious of these things, and especially as uh, mainstream newspapers like New York Times, for example, which uh, uh, was part of the Hunter Biden, uh, and, and now ha indeed has just admitted uh, that, Hunter, that some of the Hunter Biden stories are, were, were substantially correct, is now exposed as, as, as the kind of uh, paper that assumed and asserted a sense of neutrality and uh, objectivity, but has been found out to uh, failed badly in, in in a sense. But Jenny, um, come back to the point that you wanted to. But any kind of final point? Yeah. So just the, the question about digital uh, skills, literacy, literacy skills. I think that's a great question. Um, I, my son is 13, and he's uh, uh, always asking uh, us questions about this. And the way I deal with it is I I do I present him both sides of every argument he asks me about. I tell him what I, I might tell him what I think, but I tell him what the opposition would think as well. Um, and even more importantly than that, I try to do so in such a way that doesn't add like an emotional charge to it. So even if I personally feel like abortion is should be legal or illegal, I am not going to. I'm trying not to insert that so he doesn't get that that clenching of his stomach where he's like, oh, I have to hold this opinion because this is the correct opinion. 
I let him figure that out as he goes along kind of thing. Um, uh, so not, a t not emotionally attaching to opinions is one thing I, I, I really strongly, strongly, strongly advocate for. Uh, and it's very, very hard, actually. Um, and also listening, just listening to both sides of the opinion. It is that simple. And it's, it's become like some sort of radical thing now. And it, that's sad. Um, now, to your point about you know, those of us in this room might have the skills to differentiate between facts and fiction. And uh, I, 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 I don't agree that it's just those of us in this room. I think everyone has that skill. Um, and if you don't, that's on your own head. Um, and it's not my either my problem to fix or to solve um, or to worry about. Um, I, I strongly think that everyone is equipped with the facilities to make up their own minds about these issues. I don't think you have to have some special knowledge or a special education to do so. Um, and that's, that's a pretty hard line I draw on that. Um, uh, on, the, on the feelings issue, actually I think that's a really interesting point about how journalists are sticking cameras in people's faces who've just lived through some horrible tragedy and been like, how does it make you feel? Like, well, how do you think it makes me feel, you idiot? Like, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm delighted that my entire apartment block has just been shelled. Um, but that's been, I mean, that's been going on since the 80s. I mean, it's, it's almost like a cliche now of, of like the door-stepping uh, TV reporter. Um, but I do think it's gotten exponentially worse. And it goes back to this point I literally just made about how we are all caught in, a, in an emotional maelstrom that is being capitalized, it's, it's being fed and profited upon by social media because it, it just, it feeds our emotional uh, cycle on whatever these issues are. And the media is feeding into that and social media is feeding into that. Um, and it, it's become extremely toxic. Uh, I think that Brian's point earl question earlier about the, the neo-Nazis uh, on Facebook, they're fine if, if, they're, fine if, it's, if they're Ukrainian. Um, that just speaks to the fact that these institutions are wholly captured by a particular agenda. Now, I'm not entirely sure what the agenda is. Uh, is it a corporatocracy? It, or is it a political thing? I, that's a, that you could spend weeks debating that. Um, but I think we've, we can really say with confidence now that both the mainstream media um, and the social media have been wholly captured by this kind of neoliberal or new liberal or non-liberal um, uh, dogma. Now, one thing that Ella said that I thought was really interesting, and this is my last thing. The, the, the UK always had a slight advantage over the US because the UK's newspapers anyway were openly um, aligned with one, one side or the other. And I think that's a much more honest way to go. I'm fine with The Guardian being The Guardian because I know that it's The Guardian. I know, I know where they're going to come from. That's fine. I mean, I find it annoying, but fine. It's their, they do, you do you. Whereas Americans have always tried to, being lofty and idealist, have tried to dress it up like Im, they're impartial. And, you know, impartiality is something that it's very, very hard to achieve. Okay. Um, Brian, just any, any, any final points? I mean, I, I suppose my fear is that we end up collapsing into a kind of mutual distrust of everything. And I, I, I thought the, the very first question is, is, is a kind of <laughs> a good one, is kind of what's the kicking off point for something new? So if you've got any ideas, I'd be glad to have them, but uh, yeah, feel free to pick up on anything that you want. I can't solve that. I can't solve that problem. Um, I think we just need to um, uh, not pretend. As a former history teacher and history student, I, I very much agree with what was just being said in that regard. We're only going to build trust if young people are trained to treat everything they read with a healthy skepticism and that people wear their biases on their sleeve, even when they're 
reporting impartially. I think that's really helpful, as you say, around The Guardian or The Telegraph. If you look at historiography, in terms of historians, they no longer claim to be absolutely scientifically impartial in writing history books, and that's to everyone's benefit, including um, getting to the truth, ultimately. Um, there were a few comments made about the, the equivalence between offline and online and where we draw standards around like J Joe Rogan and things. I just want to say something really clear. Your online speech and expression is governed by the same rules your offline speech and expression are already. So insofar as governments or the EU are trying to hyper-regulate online space, they don't need to hyper-regulate it to stop harassment, for example. Um, that, those laws exist. Libel exists. So let's be really clear about that. What you, what you can say, you can type or you can express online and, and, vice, and vice versa. I think the final thing I would reflect on is I think we are increasingly finding this government, particularly in the areas of expression, legislating in a way that leaves us with a democratic deficit in, in who decides what can be said and how. Um, so what you're able to say online in six months' time will most likely be regulated by a quango that, that is not made up of elected representatives, that is that its own internal culture will very much shape the policies it dictates to Facebook and Google and YouTube and the rest. And that's seriously problematic. Not only will that language not be rooted in the law that's been debated in Parliament, but the elected representatives and the government that's made given these powers to Ofcom, we'll be able to stand back and say, well, that's Ofcom being terrible. We hate Ofcom. There's a real democratic deficit in that process. And um, I think that there is a, a real waning of discussion and actual formation in what healthy democracy looks like and the kind of discourse um, and, and lawmaking that we need to, to keep that going insofar as we value it. See, I think that's the kind of part of the solution or the starting point for the solution out of a climate of mistrust is a, is a kind of overt celebration of democracy in, in, in that sense. Um, it's a difficult question and you've done brilliantly, I think, in, in, in giving us some light on it. Um, so can we thank the panel very much, please? <laughs>